Today we sit with Mozart Garrier, the executive director of the Seattle-based nonprofit 21 Progress. We discuss growing up in North Philly, his love for books, and how we found purpose through community organizing. Enjoy. What's up, everybody? I go by the name of Domo. And I go by the name of Yoshiko. We sit with entrepreneurs and artists across disciplines to share their stories, insight, and gems. Their journey will inspire you to think about community and your own narrative, how it shapes who you are, and what your legacy will be. You're listening to No Blueprint. No Blueprint. No Blueprint. No Blueprint. You are listening to No Blueprint. First, who are you? Are we live? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we're not live, but we're recording. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, we're like, on. I feel like you dumped it. Like, I wish it was FCC because then you do, like, in a few minutes, you know? <laughs> um, so. Tell us who you are. Right, right. <laughs> I'm a cultural worker who enjoys bearing witness and, and creating stuff. Nice. Yeah. So, the question that we've been asking folks this season is if you had a autobiography or a documentary about your life what would the title of that documentary or autobiography be either bearing witness or even after i mean those are the i think the two kind of driving themes so i'll share i don't know when you want me to like share a story but i'll share a story about like bearing witness and like what brought me to that place before but i think even after it are two words that have been really meaningful f- to me and they just like speak to resilience um, and like all my favorite stories have always been like even after the car crash even after the storm even after the fights even after the rain and so I think that um, if there's any theme or like frame of like h- how I've moved through the world is for sure even after not necessarily me but like hopefully what I encourage or compel folks to do is like even after right mm. yeah what would how what would the opening scene of that movie be? I mean, I love cities. I've worked in lots of different cities. And so I think the opening scene is like the hood during the summertime and like folks walking down the street, like folks, like kids coming home from summer camp, you know, grandparents, you know, screwing off the front porch. I mean, I think that whatever it would be, it would be neighborhoods because I think mm-hmm. that's what grounds me. And so I think it would be for sure, like I think a lot of like movies in the early 90s, they would just cut through neighborhoods, right? And you just be weaving through like the mm-hmm. streets. Mm-hmm. It weave through the streets, mm-hmm. um, whatever neighborhood or whatever city. Mm-hmm. Nice. Where do you trace your roots back to? And how did your family get to the state? My parents are from Haiti. I'm from North Philly. They came here in the early 80s. I don't know why. Um, really, um, and I say that because like we were very fortunate. Like my father's, my grandfather was a landowner. My mother is the daughter of like a judge in Haiti, and there's not there's not like hundreds of judges in Haiti, and so very for sure had like lots of access. But I think that you know when my sister was born, you know they they felt like there might be a better way in the states, and mm-hmm. so they they uh, started out in Brooklyn. And they were there for a couple years, and then they heard that there was, like, this cool, relaxed, super safe place called Philadelphia, just two hours <laughs> down the road. <laughs> and so just like, what is this field of dreams? And so, and so they decided to go to Philadelphia, and then a few years later, I was born. We were grounded. Like, my parents helped kind of found our local, like, Haitian church, and so deeply grounded in, like, you know, our language, Haitian Creole, and deeply grounded in, like, our faith tradition and community, right? Because I think anytime you're you're a member of, like, an immigrant faith community, you know, it's very immersive, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so I think that grounds me 
And then I always say that like I'm from Philadelphia because Haitians are very prideful folks. And so it would be unfair for me to be like, I'm Haitian too, you know? Mm-hmm. We actually have lots of names for that. And so, <laughs> and, so, and so if anything, I would say that like what shapes me, what grounds me is for sure Philadelphia. The way I like to describe it is my next door neighbor to the left was Vietnamese. My next door neighbor to the right was Puerto Rican. My best friend's name was Milham and he was from Palestine. And so um, in a lot of ways, that community is kind of like shapes my analysis mm-hmm. and, and, and being immersed with, immersed in like, situated around black folks and around my language and my culture is also how I grew up. And mm. so and so I think that's also like very important because like I didn't really encounter like white folks um like in my everyday experience until maybe I was in my like my late teens. Um but they were not seen or viewed as essential. Um and so I think that that formation was like really really helpful in terms of like how I oriented myself and who I thought was important. Where did you go to college and how did you make that decision? This dude with a bald head came into like my small, like my charter <laughs> school was trash. Like, like no, seriously, like my charter school was above a nail salon, a bar, and an insurance company. It was like one of the first like charter high schools in Philadelphia. It actually mm. shut down like last year, sad. It was strange. And so this bald guy comes in and he's like, yeah, Mansfield, small college, big opportunities. And I'm like, oh, this is fascinating. <laughs> um, and it's like 3,000 folks. And so I was just like, wow, that's really, really, you know, small. And they had like all these majors, you know, because it was like part of the state school system. And it was about four hours away from Philadelphia, which is extremely far, like on the East Coast, you know, anything yeah. past two hours is considered like another world. And so um, I thought that it would be a good, like, away experience. And I really didn't know that people could go to college outside of state because my sisters went to school 30 minutes away. Mm. And so I ended up just going there. And it was a really good experience just because I ended up, like, becoming friends with most of my professors. I didn't know that then as a 17-year-old kid, you know, in a school, you know, in in Mm -hmm. North Philadelphia. But I felt like I was getting a liberal arts experience Mm. for a state school price. And, you know, there was a thousand folks on my college campus, but we had all the majors of a major university. I ended up getting that. I ended up getting like a liberal arts experience and having the freedom of like flexibility and also, you know, becoming friends and like having dinner with my professors. And so I felt like it was ended up becoming a really good choice. And then also, I think even more so, you know, it was my first time encountering like rural poverty. And that was something like interesting um, because for some reason I thought like, you know, white folks were like, affluent or were like in this far off land just because I, I lived in like a neighborhood that didn't have very many white individuals mm-hmm. and then when I you know saw farms where there was one cow and folks was going hungry you know then it kind of changes how you mm-hmm. see poverty and space and you know there's a Walmart that took over all their stores and and, and I think it helped me understand right how economics works mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and <laughs> yeah because folks ain't had no money and they're hungry and you know living in places that didn't have any heat you know and so it looks like a lot of land looks like a lot of beauty but then folks is dying inside and so right. that was really interesting as well when did you find that voice and in what form did it take? Raised in, raised in a faith tradition, uh, Haitians is a very oral, like, um, memorization is very important. It's a francophone, you know, it's colonized by France. We beat them first. And so 1804, so proud of that. I would say that first it came from, like, my faith tradition. 
and you know just kind of encountering texts every day and like I think I read the entire Bible like when I was like in third and fourth grade just because I was curious and then you know there was like this story time that happened just before formal worship service where like they'd call all the kids together and then somebody would do like this happy-go-lucky story around you know why kids should be good. Fortunately enough, I was very like awkward and uncomfortable. I got called up. Like all the like preteens got the chance to tell the story to the kids. I finally got my shot to tell the story to the kids. I was just like, I am not offering any morals. Like goal is to really make sure that that this the kids are entertained because I was so annoyed that like you know, you'd kind of be preached to for like 15 minutes and then you'd walk away sad and then your parents would be like, make sure you go back next week, you know? <laughs> and so and so I was like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not here for that. And so I think I had done some story like in the Bible, there's a lot of texts where they kind of talk through like all these like long names and they're like, blah, 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 from blah, 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 from blah, 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 from. And so I think I did like this very strange story where it's a super long name remix like a biblical fable really for like laughter and like joy and that just felt really good and so I think that was like one of the formative moments and then there was also these oratorical contests that the entire city had and this teacher I think in my sixth grade told me I could do it and so I competed in like oratorical contests when I was in sixth and seventh grade reciting the texts of other folks and so learned about Paul Lawrence Dunbar who was one of the first poets, he wrote a poem called We Wear the Mask that is like so deep and like meaningful. And he also had a chronic illness. And so I think just learning the text and also reciting the words of others, whether biblical or poetry, was just like so powerful. And then I think the other story, like non-sequentially, is that in third grade, I had this teacher, Miss Kahana. I told her thank you. So I'm, I'm grateful for that, like I think like 10 years ago or whatever. And there was a Pizza Hut Book It program. Have y'all ever heard of the Pizza Hut Book It program? <laughs> no. Best program ever. So basically, the gist of the Pizza Hut Book It program, sorry you didn't get exposure to it, <laughs> is that Pizza Hut would give you a personal pan pizza if you read like 10 I do books. Do remember the oh, Pizza Hut yeah, Book It okay. program? Yeah. Okay. And so, that so. not exist anymore. It was a major program. <laughs> personal for me. pan pizzas. Personal pan. No, the program, uh, not the pizza. Oh, okay. Well, it was really based off of like on the trust of the teachers, right? Honor and system. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, no, you had to fill out the chart or whatever. And so I had this teacher who was just like, "Hey, you should get involved in the book it program." And then she handed me like ten Hardy Boy books, and it was doing everything right they was running up in people's houses <laughs> <laughs> like people was pointing guns at them and they would block it with like a like a trash can <laughs> and so she gave me like 10 of those books and you usually could only take two out you know and so like i just start i read all 10 like that week and i'd be reading underneath my desk be like no i need to find out what happens next <laughs> right like yeah. you know i need to know what happens in that mystery and so what ended up happening was we had always had books in our home. Mm -hmm. And so then I read all those books in the basement of our house. We had 100 books. My mom would go to the thrift store. Mm -hmm. And that's when you could, as long as you could fill, if you filled the trash bag filled with books, you could have all the books for like $5. And so my mom would fill a trash bag full of books and put them in a car and be like, these Americans crazy. (laughs) (laughs) So so every week we had all these books. And it was everything. It didn't really matter. It's whatever people give to the Goodwill or the thrift store, which is everything, right? right? And so I was reading all of that, and I was getting these personal pan pizzas every week, and I had to eat rice. and I love rice and chicken now, like, 
as an adult. Yeah. But when you Caribbean and you see all this fast food and your parents don't let you eat McDonald's mm-hmm. or Pizza Hut right. or Burger King, I had never eaten fries and sauce in the eighth grade. I, so <laughs> yeah. I'd sneak out before the bus left to my house, go get my personal pan pizza, <laughs> run up, catch the late bus home, and be trashing it. And then and then my mom be like, you hungry? I'd be like, nah, I'm good. <laughs> and, so, and so personal pan pizza booking program changed my life. Cultivated love of reading. I read like a hundred. Pizza Hut. Thank you, Pizza Hut. <laughs> um, pay your workers. Um, living wage. And so, I mean, it really was the Pizza Hut Booking Pro program. Like that was the breakthrough. Like church started it, but the Pizza Hut Booking program, like, was a damn breakthrough. And I was such an average student. I graduated high school with a two point four, yeah. but I had near perfect score on reading, and it was because of the Booking program. Like I was awful at math. I had a 2.4 GPA, you know, I was for sure like athlete. I never, I don't think I ever got like an A in any class <laughs> until like I went to college. And then I was like the Dean's List student all the way through. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really was like books that really kind of kept me engaged in school because of the characters and things like that. So mm-hmm. yeah. shout out, shout out to Pizza Hut. Yeah, the Book It program. Miss Kahana, and Miss Kahana came through because, you know, I for sure was like middle of the pack, straight mm-hmm. C's. I just showed up every day, never did my homework. And so Miss Kahana didn't have to invest in me. And so I was very fortunate that, you know, as a reserve average student who wasn't performing well and who wasn't also obedient, I just didn't do my homework. They decided to pour into me and kind of, you know, cultivate a love of reading. And then when they saw, like, I still was, it wasn't, I just want to be clear, it wasn't the case that I got better grades after that fact. (laughs) I want to say, like, I didn't get better grades until nine years later. And so, and so it really was the case that, you know, in spite of, like, the performance not being there, that person still poured into me. Mm-hmm. And so by the time I went to college, you know, I had for sure read like thousands of books that kind of drew me to like lots of different topics and subjects that and information. ideas. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. Okay. Uh, <laughs> book it program. The book it, the book it program. Book this it. podcast is sponsored by the Book It Program. Yo. Um, yo, somebody create a book it program, scores is going to go up. It's done. It's, it's, <laughs> yo, pizzas, donuts, if book literacy was associated with, like, food. I can food, see that with food, yeah. That might, be, that might be the way. So, that might be the way. Yeah, that's, so, the, that's the way. So I graduated with a psychology degree. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then what? So I think that same summer I had gone to, like, this, like, investment banking conference that monster.com was hosting basically the gist of it was like companies from the corporate sector were were trying to recruit like students of color and so they would host this like super cool monster dlp conference um and the whole gist of it was to try to get as much you know talent from young folks of color who were graduating from college and see if they would want to join the navy or join like various corporations and so I went to that weekend or whatever, and it was pretty much like my RA training where you got to do all these kumbaya activities, and it was, like, so easy. And so and so I ended up getting a scholarship, and the scholarship was pretty much like, we looking at you, and we want to recruit you. And so I was being recruited to work at an investment banking. I was being recruited to work at Vanguard, which is one of the larger investment management companies on the yeah. planet. So the choice points was, you know, work at Vanguard and go into, like, investment management or advisory services or my my partner now wife you know they were going they were planning to go to denver because they had dreams of going to denver to go to social work school and they're like yeah like you know if we not married or whatever whatever like 
it ain't gonna work. So I applied to Denver, be like, okay, maybe I should go to that place or whatever. And so the choice points were really like, okay, go to this or go to that. And so I ended up going to like social work school. And at that point, it was still the whole idea was, okay, I'm not, I'm not gonna go to the for-profit sector. I'm gonna get my PhD in social work and really just like study res- resiliency and study, mm-hmm. you know, social change. And so I went to social work school to study community organizing um, in Denver. So, so that's what happened next. Nice. So what was it like? Moving from Pennsylvania mm-hmm. to Denver, Colorado. I learned how to do yoga. I meditated <laughs> for the first time. I <laughs> ate smoothies for breakfast every morning, and I still usually do. So <laughs> it was a departure. I mean, it was very much a departure. Denver is one of the f- few, Seattle's counted in that, cities that are majority white. And so it was my first time ever not seeing black people, you know, be in the center of the city because in Philadelphia, mm. like we everywhere, and so it was for sure like a cultural shock. What did you do for work, or did you work in grad school, or was it? Were you yeah, we was out, bro. I had a kid coming nine months, and oh. I was a social work intern. Have you heard? <laughs> <laughs> so, so yes, yes. So, so yeah. Are you? <laughs> Yo, Tay, tell him. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I think my senior year, I was like hype on community organizing. I had done like a lot of student campus leadership stuff on campus. And so I felt so lucky I had gotten a job before I moved to Denver. And the job was for this organization called Rape Assistance and Awareness Program. And the gist of it is, is that's the only organization up to that point, and that still is the case, that knocks on doors every single night to stop to try to end sexual and domestic violence through both fundraising and awareness building. And so for, I think, a month and a half or two months before grad school, I knocked on 150 doors a night. You know, hi, my name is Mozart. Tonight I'm trying to end sexual and domestic violence. Can I tell you more? And so I did that every night for my first two months. In Denver? Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Which was hella hard, and I'm happy you said that. I was going to say you were a black man. In Denver. Word. And so I was going to an elite university. Folks were slamming doors on me. And my first job was a telemarketer. And I'm a hustler. And so I was just like, okay. Obviously, these folks think I want to hurt them instead of, like, inform them that one in four people are sexually domestically assaulted. That's a goal, right? Right. Um, And so so what I ended up doing was wearing my university shirt, and it was, like, burgundy. And so they would see it and be like, whoa, you go to University of Denver, which is, like, I think... Fifty to seventy thousand dollars a year, Shit. like yeah. it's hella expensive, and mm-hmm. like folks who some of the a significant amount of folks who go there pay cash um, to go there, and so and so I think I had to signal class, unfortunately, mm-hmm. or not. Well, no, nah, no, nah, I'm gonna organize, and so and so and so it was really important to signal class for mm-hmm. sure, for sure, in order to kind of get folks to open the door. And I think the greatest gift is I remember one night like our shift started at six o'clock to nine o'clock, and then you. Particularly me, I don't knock on nobody's door in the suburbs at night at 9 o'clock. But for whatever reason, I was just like, hey, I'm far from gold, knocked on the door. It was a small mini mansion, and, you know, this woman opens the door. You know, I kind of do my whole spiel, invites me in. I'm like, this is dangerous for me. (laughs) So (laughs) so let's be clear. Um, This is how people people don't come back, you know. Um, but for whatever even I did, and, like, almost immediately this person starts crying, kind of sharing their survivor story, and that they've never shared it with anyone, and they've never encountered someone who was actually saying the things that I was saying out loud, wow. you know? And so that was really compelling. 
And then there was another person, another thing he shared that he was conservative Christian man. You know, he was just getting out, looked like he had just came back from like church service. You know, he said that his daughter had been um, assaulted and that he didn't really necessarily support these liberal causes or whatever, whatever, but he considered this a divine appointment. Um, mm-hmm. And divine appointment being that this obviously is the right pace at the right time, and I've mm-hmm. knocked on the door at the right place at the right time. And so that was really powerful just, you know, to encounter folks and have a divine appointment. Out of those 120 doors, you only get four yeses ever. A good night is 12, mm-hmm. you know, but mm-hmm. usually if you get two, you're, you're all right. And so I think it was also thrilling because when you encounter that yes, it was it wasn't always the bumper sticker folks, the folks that, you know, voted for your candidate, mm-hmm. the folks that believed in what you believed in. It was oftentimes like cash poor white folks who might still be in a relationship where they're being hurt or black folks are like, hey, let me just put some gas in the tank because I know you need it. And they empty the change out their pocket and they hand it to you really because, you know, they've been impacted. And so it was Tough job, but also awesome job. And during that same time, I also worked for the city of Denver. And pretty much I worked with a lot of folks who have TANF um, and who are trying to go back to work because it was like a federally like mandatory program. You know, a lot of times they were coming to the class to be filled and be like, hey, I got to check this box, got to check that box. And so it was really cool to have like a new class every Monday where you got to talk to folks who are really in the thick of things and like, you know, talk about what they do have and that they're not empty and they're not broken and that, you know, that they most of them were there because they wasn't trying to get their benefits cut off, but also just, you know, them also knowing that, like, those benefits don't make them who they are. And mm-hmm. so so I did that, knocked on doors and, like, taught adult ed classes for folks who were on public assistance. Nice. Nice. And then what what did you do after graduation? Went back to New York, so I ended up having to leave because we had the baby, and my mom, my my wife was just like, the Midwest is the worst, and wanted to go back to New York, and so I ended up going to Syracuse University to finish up my degree, mainly because they had won a national championship a few years before there, I won't lie. <laughs> <laughs> so I moved back to New York, and then there, I got fired. My first After that, like I was doing community organizing, also did some immigrant rights work, there and also did some like arts ed stuff there and then like I was just like damn I got a kid so I was just like I should get serious about my life and become a therapist so I decided to be a therapist on a college campus and I got fired like my 13th weekend not because I'd done anything bad or inappropriate I was just a really bad therapist and they told me that and kept it 100 and I really appreciated that I was like yeah you're right it is time for me to go and so I ended up working in public housing um, and affordable housing I'm doing community organizing work and leadership work because for some reason I thought that like being a college therapist was a stable and like cool like long-term <laughs> profession no and so and so and so I ended up going back to organizing you know my the end of my last year and then then I ended up working in like for tech companies over the last few years just before I graduated with my graduate degree I was just like I don't want to be a regular social worker it's a trap I started emailing like all these like tech companies and that were at South by Southwest you know which for folks who don't know who are listening like you know is a massive you know conference that like is at the edge of like innovation or whatever and I was just like yo I just got a graduate degree from social work school and I work for free because I was in upstate New York and so I was just like it don't cost that much to live here. 
It's actually the cheapest place to live in the United States. And so I was just like, I work for free. I work for $10. And this guy hit me back up who was starting a benefit corporation, a social entrepreneur corporation. And he was just like, yo, I'm looking to, to work with somebody. And so my first job after grad school was the, being the, pretty much the marketing lead and the marketing manager and the content marketing manager for a startup based in Austin, Texas. And so I did that for a few years. Then I worked for a startup based in Southern California that was focused on, like, I don't know, like yoga, meditation, like stuff like that. And I also did housing work in New York. And so during the day, I'd have this standard like nine to five, like social work gig. And during the night, I'd be like emailing the founder of Craigslist and trying to raise money for a venture capital. So I had like 15 jobs. Word. Yeah. <laughs> so I worked like, yeah, I worked six, seven days a week for like three years or five years. Yeah. yeah. What is your elevator pitch for 21 Progress? The elevator pitch for 21 Progress is really that it's kind of strange that like, for example, the other day, I don't know if folks have heard about like the Obama fellows, like mm-hmm. Obama has fellows, right? Mm-hmm. 20,000 people applied for that program. Mm-hmm. Really exciting. Right. And they only picked 20 people. Uh, that press release was interesting. I actually know some of the folks there. So one of the folks, Accountability Lab, I was like part of like 40 people under 40 who are social entrepreneurs. And like he was part of my cohort. Another person, Haitian, exciting, go us, right? But then I think what folks don't reckon with is the fact that let's say if we were to guess, right, maybe we would say 5,000 of the 20,000 applications were trash, right? Like we're just awful. And maybe those folks just weren't a good fit. They weren't in a good stage in their life. But I'm willing to bet that at least, I don't know, 7,000 of those folks were probably like right on that border, but they didn't get picked because the program in advance had said that there wasn't enough spots, you know? And so what Toyo Progress is about is, is that like so often we kind of pick folks in advance through these very selective programs and not reckon with the fact that by doing that, right, we're saying that we don't need more people. You know what I'm saying? Like that we don't need more people. And so what we do at 21 Progress is we're trying to figure out, like, how do we actively support as many folks as possible who are pursuing social change? Right. Not with this agenda of like, hey, it'd be neater or cleaner to only have 10. Hey, it'd be neater or cleaner to only have like, you know, 40. But really the case that if if 20,000 people all around the world want to change the world, why is it that only 20 folks get access to this really awesome program? Why is it that like those folks are pursuing that program and didn't get that in college, right? Didn't get that in high school, didn't get that, you know, in their own neighborhood, right? Like, why do they desire to be a part of this program? And I think it's because we've, like, let a lot of the tools and frameworks and the things that actually work be so selective. And so, so one, we support young folks through their journey in college mostly um, and then through their early career to make sure that they have the tools, the skills, the support and mentorship to navigate that space so they, they don't just spend like two years in the struggle and then say, I'm retired because it was so hard, right? That they actually persist. Um, and then secondly, that one of the reasons why folks don't have access to stuff is because there isn't proactive, interactive and powerful education that's actually relatable, you know. And so what does it look like for when we train these like, quote unquote, leaders to say it's not enough for you to be cool? Like you must like go back. Right. You have to go back and build critical power because until everyone knows, no one wins. And so we engage in like this community education that's deeply grounded in this ideal of multiplication. Right. Right? Not adding and saying, oh, we hit 100 folks, yay us. But like for the issue of like we've been doing work around DACA and undocumented young folks for a long time, there are 
20,000 young folks who were eligible for DACA when that DACA program existed. There are no nonprofits in Washington state that serve 20,000 undocumented folks, right? Mm -hmm. There are 40 million people in the United States who are currently experiencing poverty. There are not 40 million people working to address poverty, right? So in terms of scale, none of the programs or services or things we do actually meet the scale of the problem. We don't have the capacity to actually solve for the root causes of poverty for those 40 million people. Mm -hmm. We have it for 1,000. We have it for 200. We do not have it for, you know, the 40 million, the 50 million, you know? And so and so we really try to engage in, like, this really meaningful and hopefully transformative education practice that really doesn't kind of begin and end with us, but really tries to, like, imagine what it would be po- what would be possible if everyone who encounters our program in, like, that learning and mentorship phase actually engage in, like, transformative education around all the things that matter, whether it's, like, economic opportunity, housing, what have you, really because we know that it's not because... Um, there's a lack, but it's really because, you know, there isn't really anyone like just telling the truth, you know? Mm-hmm. And the last thing that we do is like, you know, try to shift the culture through like bringing civic voices in action. And so, you know, we have one young person whose story has been shared a number of times, you know, in the halls of Congress and like in local, you know, local elected leaders and things like that. And with that, you know, a lot of times when folks are in the media or in the headlines, oftentimes their stories are like exploited or like they don't feel good about them afterwards. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one story in particular, if you end up like linking to it, is like Nancy Pelosi, the House leader, sharing the story of this young lady named Amy Kelly. Instead of, you know, Nancy Pelosi saying like, look at this vulnerable immigrant who, you know, really needs your sympathy and, you know, you know, is willing to like give up their parents for whatever, whatever. Nancy actually ends up saying in their own words that this is about love. This is about having an American, you know, younger sister who if their older siblings were deported or removed, that that little girl would be alone, right? And so when Nancy Pelosi says that out loud, we're shifting the culture. And so when we talk about civic voices in action, it's not just about headlines, is that when you read down that everyone can be proud of what those words say and that those stories actually change how elected officials and policies are crafted. And it's not about any of us being perfect, but it's actually about all of us kind of being grounded in the fact that no one wants to be away from folks that they love and that borders should never or like being late on an application should not mean that you'll never see your parents again. Like that's absolutely stupid. And so instead of like engaging in these very moral arguments that are like show, like really talking about the fact that too many people are separated because of a late application or because not having enough money. And it's both not ethical, immoral, unjust. But unfortunately, when we talk about advocacy or our, we talk about our stories, we never get justice. And so and so our civic voices in action is really trying to position us in the right spot. And so with that, like whether it's media or the White House, I think like at this stage right now, a young person or a young adult who has been trained or supported is in every level of government in this city and like in this region from literally like city council to the White House. How do you as as a director balance all that comes at you through this work? Um, because it sounds like there's so many different avenues and so many different people and places and spaces and organizations and communities that 21 Progress serves. And so how do you as a director kind of figure out where you go and and which way is up? I mean, I think it's keeping the right score. So for immigration, right, 
I think it's not being impressed with yourself. Like if if like I'm saying, oh, Twin Empire says this work, and then the, we do that work, and then we do this work, and then we do this work. It's still the case that Amy like walked a hundred miles in a hundred days three years ago, and still hasn't seen her parents yet. It's still the case that folks get deported in the city of Seattle every single day, right? And so I think it's really reminding myself of what the score is, right? Because don't, regardless of how busy I am or how hard I'm working or how powerful or whatever whatever our work is, if the score don't change for the people that we say we represent, then we got more work to do. And so, I mean, I think I don't try to like be like, hey, I'm so busy, because I think that undermines what the scorecard says, right? Because if we say our mission is to like make things more meaningful or powerful for immigrant young folks, or if we say that like we represent like for black folks or, you know, for any identity, right? And the scorecard don't change for them, right? Like their lived experience is not different, then we ain't doing good work. And so so I mean I really I, I think I grounded in that. So it's not so much that like I'm so busy or I'm so that. It's mm-hmm. more so the case that like I'm just keeping the score. And if we're losing, then I say we're losing. And if we're winning, we're winning. But I don't play myself in thinking that being busy is work. Real. As we all know, in in doing this work, self-care is so important. Mm -hmm. How do you personally self-care as as you do the work that you do and as you support others in doing the work that they do? Yeah. I mean, I love reading books. And so I read every day. I don't get free pizza no more. (laughs) I play basketball, I think, like, two or three times a week. And then I do all the wellness practices. Like, it's so ridiculous. Like, I have vitamin D on my desk right now. And so, yeah, I I mean, I'm pretty aggressive when it comes to wellness. More so because I think that there is this notion of martyrdom, right? Um, In terms of, like, hey, like, I should feel awful because I'm doing, you know, God's work, the people's work, you know, like there's just that like kind of like sentiment. And so I think for myself, the way I think about it, a lot of my work so far has been in public housing, has been in church basements. I've never encountered someone who's actually in those situations right now, who's so excited to meet someone who's tired, sad, and not really capable to fully listen to them, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and you know, Jay-Z had this quote that I then adopted is that it takes discipline to be yourself. You know, and and discipline to be yourself means that, like, I'm radically focused on, you know, how can I drink as much water as I can? How can I be fully present? How can I listen very closely? How can I acknowledge that if I hear things coming from my body that I actually do something about it and don't call it a symptom of the work that I do? Right. Mm -hmm. I do all of it. Like, I have many checklists, always taking different vitamins, always, you know, reading wellness just because I think, you know, wellness is such a gift and it's we're all you know, temporarily abled in various ways. Yeah, so so I think that's kind of how I approach it. Wellness books or practice recommendations for listeners? So many, though. Oh, okay, top three, So five. many, though. Okay. I, don't, I, don't, I don't have any. I don't okay. know. That's okay. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think, I think you know, um, I listened to one of your other podcasts, I think, with Lou, and they were talking about journaling. And so there's a... <laughs> such a geek there there's a researcher james pennebaker at ut austin he did uh, um did you, have you heard of james no okay he did a study and he found that you know if you write for 15 minutes for four days straight that there was a positive correlation in decreasing like depressive symptoms anxious systems 15 minutes four days writing about anything really like what like was really tough i can send you the exercises it's like 
really like it's like a paragraph long no need to read a whole book four days straight (laughs) all you need is like four days straight 15 minutes of writing so the price of admission right for wellness is is not high so so um (laughs) i think james penavega's work is really awesome julia cameron's work the artist way is fantastic in terms of you know doing morning pages every morning Mm -hmm. i'm a night person and so when i've like my best years have been when i did night pages every night for like six months straight or when I meditated for like a year straight. And so I just really recommend like whatever practice folks find like nourishing to just do it every day. Like mm-hmm. find a practice that you can do every single day. Like right now, like I'm playing basketball now, but like at one point this year, like as I was getting back into shape because I was really abusing my body for like my first two years here, I did squats every day for like 30 days. And then, you know, my body was just, you know, like just air squats, like no muscle head stuff, just air squats. And then, like, as I did that, my body was just like, okay, we can do more. Okay, well, let me bring my sneakers in. Okay, we can do more. Okay, let me go to yoga, right? And so and so I really I really wouldn't necessarily recommend anything. I think you should only commit to something that you can do every day as a creative practice or, like, a, as a wellness practice and do it every day and, like, have the discipline to be yourself. And I think by kind of having, like, a daily practice, it can be so grounding. Yeah, it's been so grounding to have a daily practice. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Last question. What's next? I don't know. I mean, I think that, you know, I've been at 21 Progress for three years, which is so exciting. And, you know, we just the we did this like summer program. And like the first year we had like 20 people, 30 people, most of them from UW Seattle. This year, you know, we launched the program nationally, 33 states, um, almost 400 candidates. Really awesome and amazing stuff. I'm not sure. I mean, to be honest, um, I really don't know, like, what we'll do next. I think I'm really excited. One of my other favorite quotes is that, like, the world doesn't need education. It needs demonstration. And so I'm really excited to, like, just try to figure out, like, not so much, like, how many ideals I can have, but how many ideals I can demonstrate. And so I think, if anything, you know, right now has been a challenge because, when I was in other places, I was an individual, like, unique unicorn performer. And here, like, I have the unique challenge of, like, actually seeing if I can pour into other folks mm-hmm. and, like, not say, hey, like, look at Mozart, but actually say, like, hey, can I, how can I support you? Like, how can I, like, be with you and, like, be with your greatness, like, be with your growth? And so just, I think, like, leading a team of folks has been just so challenging and humbling and, like, the hardest thing that I've ever done because it's often so, so, so very easy for folks to be like, I'm awesome, right? It's so much harder to actually, you know, say that, you know, you didn't sacrifice, right? Like, I don't want to, like, say, oh, I sacrificed everything for you. But it's also, it's actually harder to actually be in, like, orchestra with other folks. And so I think, like, that has taken a lot of, like, energy. And, you know, I'm, I think I'm just really trying to figure out how to be good at it and, like, really figure out how I can be of service. How I can be less important. Yeah. So I, I just hope whatever I do next, it allows me to play a part, play a role, and not do everything. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. This is awesome. Yeah. If you liked what you heard, be sure to donate so we can keep going. We are on SoundCloud, iTunes, and YouTube. So be sure to subscribe, rate, and comment. You have no idea how much it helps. We also want to know what you think. You can hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and you can even use the hashtag NoBlueprint. And if you're really down with the movement, you can join our Patreon account and become a patron, where you'll get exclusive content and limited edition merchandise. 
No Blueprint is powered by Ambassador Stories. We share stories of the people, places, and spaces that bring soul to our communities. No Blueprint is recorded at Ambassador Stories Studios and co-produced with me, Mayawa Aina. Hear more episodes of No Blueprint and get official No Blueprint merchandise at noblueprintpodcast.com.